This is Outside Shots, a college basketball betting podcast with Eli Hershkovich. Seven seconds to go. Three-pointer. Double and Scott Phillips. <laughs> Covering game by game odds and futures markets. Thomas, Shake, Crossover, Step Back! It's Outside Shots, presented by the Lions. This is Outside Shots, the College Hoops podcast for betting underdogs on a nightly basis. We're fading Kenny Payne and Louisville basketball. Is that a premium, Scott? And of course, breaking down everything else you need to know on the College Basketball Odds Board, always presented by thelines.com. And a couple notes about our content over there. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, subscribe and leave us a five-star review and you'll have a chance to win a $25 Amazon gift card. And if you're watching on YouTube, give the video a thumbs up, subscribe, and ring the bell to get notifications whenever a new episode is released of the Outside Shots podcast. And thelines.com is giving away a $25 Amazon gift card in our daily college basketball hoops pick'em contest. For more details, head over to play dot the lines dot com scott phillips you can find him on twitter at phillips hoops you can follow me on twitter at eli herskovich episode number two scott back home near the chicagoland area after a trip near tampa bay i'm gonna mess it up if i go into any further detail so how was florida long story short for you in the last week It was a great trip, and normally I wouldn't take a trip during the first week of the college basketball season, but we had a wedding uh, that we had to attend from one of my wife's best friends from college that we had booked six months ago, well before I knew that this podcast would be in my life, and it was also (laughs) my wife's birthday, so... You know, kind of a two birds, one stone type of trip. We had a great time. Congrats to Paul and Izzy. Uh, It was a beautiful wedding. And, you know, I had a lot of fun in the St. Petersburg area. I didn't realize that downtown had so much happening in terms of nightlife and everything else. But, you know, great trip overall. I got to give a shout out to uh, my guy, Paul, in particular, who, (laughs) you know, the night before his own wedding, after, you know, going through the rehearsal dinner and everything, he's out having drinks with us and he's feeling pretty good. And we're talking about the podcast and he just puts the show on right then and there at the bar and he's like <laughs> trying to listen to it in his ear and um you know it, just like kind of the the funny thing about that is you know he's like I'm just gonna let it play in my pocket I want you guys to get the numbers and you know so shout out to Paul uh, on you know the night before his wedding he's still looking out for other people looking out for our <laughs> podcast and uh he's probably our MVP fan of the week here Yeah, it sounds like it. Let's just shoot him a $25 Amazon gift card. I'm hoping that's what you gave him as the wedding gift, Scott. Nothing out of your own pocket. Well, not not 25, not 25. I mean, we're not getting terribly cheap here, but, you know, it was was a lot of fun during the week. A lot of fun hanging out with my wife's college friends who are a real riot to hang out with. And uh, a great trip for my wife's birthday as well. I mean, it's a beautiful area. And to get out of the Chicagoland cold for a week and to enjoy the Florida sun is always recommended. And by the way, travel tip, we love to get out the week or two before Thanksgiving. And obviously, if you've got kids that are in school, that's a little bit more difficult. But, yeah. man, everything is so free and easy. There's not a lot of people traveling. Usually you can find decent rates on flights and rooms and Airbnbs and stuff like that. And we've made this an annual trip the last couple of years and always enjoy getting out this time of year. Well, you're a week too late, I guess. I guess you have one more week to go <laughs> if you want to make that trip out. Maybe a little late well, to plan you know, it, we, we, we had to revolve this around the wedding. So, um, yes. you know, it was, you know, but I, I highly recommend getting out this time of year if you don't have commitments that are holding you back. Because <laughs> if, you know, a lot of people travel for Thanksgiving and Christmas and they're saving up for those times of year. But, man, it's it's really free and easy traveling this time of year, I find. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. I didn't have a wedding this last weekend. I was inside watching a lot of college basketball. Saturday night was able to get out uh, with the big games happening on Friday. But I did have to talk with my girlfriend again that this coming <laughs> Friday is another big college basketball night. I already got the death stare for this last week. And now it's death stare number two, maybe death stare number three on Thursday. So pray for me, Scott, if I am if I end up on the streets maybe next it's week. It's going to be a long five months Friday. for you. If you- 
Yeah, I mean, you got to start taking her some nice dinners and uh, really, you know, showing her some love on a weeknight and, <laughs> you know, surprising her with some things. I'm not going to tell you how to do you. You do your own thing with your relationship, but, you know, happy wife, happy life. That's what they always tell you. And, you know, you're going to be busy these next five months. Find those spots where you could pick and choose, man. But we're not married. So <laughs> oh, I know that. I'm, get there. I'm, I'm saying I'm saying, you know, that still is applicable to your girlfriend, too. So. It'll, you. you know, you guys will figure it out. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll let her know that you gave us your positivity <laughs> on the podcast. But oh, always. Scott, uh, as we get into the plan for the show today, enough with our, our weekend activities. We're going to dive into the biggest takeaways from week one of the college basketball season. Not a ton. We don't want to overreact, but some notable things for sure. We'll touch on some of the bigger conferences that we didn't hit on on the first podcast. A little Big Ten. Big East as we're recording this, Villanova, which was, I want to say, mid-30 point favorite against Delaware State at home up four in the second half after losing outright to Temple on Friday as a five-point favorite in the, the Big Five game. A little Pac-12, a little Mountain West. I just have one quick note there. And then some big games for the rest of the week. A little bit on the Champions Classic and not maybe as much as we would on a normal podcast previewing the rest of the week because we're going to do a live pregame show, essentially. I don't know if Scott and I will make it a, a happy hour pregame show, but we'll ooh, preview. I like ooh, that idea. You already got the IPA ready to go. Yeah, I'm hitting the store tomorrow. <laughs> but Michigan State, Kentucky and Kansas Duke, we're going to touch on it briefly. And then some of the bigger games for later in the week, Texas, Gonzaga, Virginia, Baylor and Illinois. UCLA in the Roman main event out in Las Vegas. And then big game Sunday. We're not going to hit on it a ton because Gonzaga, Kentucky obviously have their prior games leading up to it and some big matchups respectively. So Scott, if people already subscribed, like your buddy Paul, if people have the rating, the five-star review already into Apple, let's get them the content they deserve. Starting out with Gonzaga fails to cover against Michigan State. But they do win outright 64 to 63. And if you head over to shotquality.com, shot quality bets in particular, and shot quality bets, by the way, is your home for smarter basketball betting models. The shot quality betting model makes projections based on expected scores, eliminating variability, and increasing predictive accuracy. Ready to win more bets? Head over to shotqualitybets.com today. So looking at what shot quality projected from the actual game itself, kind of taking out variance, shot quality made this game 68 apiece. So Michigan State was competitive on the screen and they were competitive in the box score in terms of efficiency and variance, according to shot quality. So that was an interesting note that I found from the game. But a couple of things that stood out to me, number one, Hickman was played off the floor with those four turnovers. Malachi Smith was a much more finer option at both ends of the floor for Gonzaga at the point guard position and a tougher matchup defensively also for A.J. Hogard. Gonzaga's turnovers really cost them with Michigan State able to leak out and transition a lot in that first half. And then Sissoko, a guy who I mentioned previewing Gonzaga-Michigan State the first time around in the first episode, we knew Michigan State's front court depth would be a little concerning, but his presence against Timmy, at least in the first half before Timmy got going and took over in that game, was pretty effective and also his presence on the glass too. So we don't want to take away a ton. Michigan State's pack line defense was effective against Gonzaga. And you could also credit that to maybe just an outdoor environment for a, a floor spacing <laughs> Gonzaga team that could traditionally shoot it well from three. So we don't want to, again, take too much away, but just some of my notes from the game itself with Gonzaga failing to cover, but winning outright. Yeah, for me, like it's really hard to take a lot from this because of the bizarre conditions. You've got kind of this heightened sense of the moment because you're playing on a ship full of our military personnel on Veterans Day. And you talk about some of the, you know, emotional pregame speeches from guys like Tom Izzo and Mark Few, you know, harping on that sort of thing. It's not your typical crowd. And uh, 
you know, again, I, the sunlight having um, an effect on the first half of the game, whether it was Michigan State shooting the ball on their end of the floor or, you know, as simple as Drew Timmy just trying to gather a post-entry feed on the other end of the floor. I mean, that that sliver of sunlight that's right there on the strong side of the floor every time they're trying to throw it into him. So that certainly didn't make life easy as well. And, you know, for me, Gonzaga just being able to gut this one out and really never looking flustered or, you know, too out of the moment was really what stood out to me. And Timmy taking over in the second half and all facets of the game, uh, you know, Malachi Smith starting to emerge as maybe the answer at guard over Nolan Hickman. Yep. Those are the things I'm kind of looking at more big picture stuff than, you know, the the type of you know reaction we might on a typical neutral site game. But, you know, Michigan State's a steady veteran team. They've got a lot to prove being outside of the top 25 preseason with such a veteran group. And, you know, Maddie Sissoko is playing quite well, as you mentioned, Eli. And I like that he's able to put up numbers and get to the free throw line without having a lot of touches or shots designed for him. But again, to me, Michigan State just doesn't have a guy that you can really rely on to get buckets down the stretch. You saw that the final play of the game. There was one yeah. instance as well where Malik Hall grabs an offensive board and instead of maybe kicking it out and resetting to his guards, he throws up a wild shot. And I just want to see that trust, uh, you know, start to develop with Michigan State's guards and their forwards being kind of in sync. I mean, th- it was a great effort from them. I think that there's more to this team than meets the eye, but without the star power, without the go-to guy, I still think that their ceiling is limited against the elites like Gonzaga, and it showed down the stretch. Yeah, I mean, that last possession was just an absolute cluster bleep. That was not, I, I held that one back right there. You, I think it seemed like they were trying to get Tyson Walker free off a ball screen, but that might've been a little deception on Izzo's behalf. It was just, yeah. I, I didn't know what to expect. Maybe... Hogard was holding the ball a little too long at the top of the arc. It was it was bad all around. But like you said, they were competitive and held their own and obviously covered as 11 and a half point dogs, nearly pulling that one out for anybody that had Michigan State first half money line. You cashed that one, too. On to North Carolina and Gonzaga right up near the top of the national title odds board. You could check out all the national title odds over at the lines.com to win it all in, in college basketball. North Carolina is right there, too, Scott. Plus 950, right around the same price as Gonzaga, but 0-2 against the spread. And they beat College's Charleston pretty comfortably on Friday night. Didn't cover. Charleston put up a little under 1.15 points per possession. The biggest thing that I noticed in the game, and but we did mention it on our preseason podcast, that North Carolina's ball screen defense and perimeter defense in particular got a little lucky in terms of the opponents that they faced on their run to the title game and losing in the final seconds to Kansas last April. If you have a a Charleston team, a mid-major like that, that can space the floor, play five out and get clean looks and get Baycott on the move where he's not a particularly mobile big in terms of guarding the perimeter, UNC's defense, perimeter defense in particular, might be in a little bit of trouble maybe when we get closer to ACC play and the number is a little bit inflated in terms of their spreads. Yeah, for me, obviously a little bit concerning with North Carolina not covering in both games, but, you know, they're still adjusting to Pete Nance entering the lineup and he's off to a very slow start. That was something that we talked about in the first episode is how he replaces Brady Manick in a number of different capacities. And, you know, he just looks a little bit lost right now, whether it's the moment being new for him or meshing with four guys that know each other so well. I think he'll he'll get stronger as they start to play more together, but certainly a story storyline to watch for with him not playing as well and you know again Armando Baycott's going to continue to step up Caleb Love has put up solid numbers so far I, I'm not really too concerned about the lack of you know them covering and you know I think that they're going to eventually adjust for me something to watch for is their bench I mean you know a lot of these games early in the season playing, you know, these low to mid-major teams, you want to see maybe some freshmen or sophomores or some transfers step in and join the rotation. Seth Trimble looks like he has the capability to maybe be a guy off the bench that can step in right away with his athleticism. But He looked good off you know, the dribble. Me, 
Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, for me, I think this is still going to be a team that rides their horses. I, I don't think they're going to have a particularly deep bench this year, despite what Hubert Davis might have had to say in the preseason. And again, when you're when you're logging heavy minutes or you have an injury concern or foul trouble with someone like Baycott, that's something to watch for. Yeah. And if you think about foul trouble in the Duke game and the first time those two teams played, Obviously, a huge rivalry in college basketball, and UNC looked lost offensively when Baycott got in early foul trouble last year against Bancaro. So you're right. Nance played over 30 minutes on Friday. It doesn't seem like just because he's entering the rotation in terms of the Iron Five with Manic out, it doesn't seem like Hubert Davis is going to lean on anybody else. You look for those new pieces to step up in these next couple games and they're going to adjust. And and we're going to see, again, some of these other freshmen, sophomores get more comfortable, but they need more from their bench in terms of ACC play because there's going to come a point in time when they have some sort of issue that other guys need to step up. Moving on to Tennessee, a little higher up on the National Title Futures odds board, plus 2,500 to win it all. They lost outright, Scott, at home. To Colorado after Colorado, the Buffs lost to Grambling as a 14 and a half point favorite, lost outright on Friday night. They go to Tennessee playing on not the ball's home court, so a little bit of a sleepy crowd. And they win by double digits as 15 and a half point dogs. That's where they closed around 10 to 1 on the money line. When Tennessee doesn't shoot well from three, that could very well lead to variance like we saw in this matchup. Vescovi didn't shoot it well. But the one area of concern that I had for Tennessee's defense, which we talked up a little bit on the first podcast, was number one, ball screen defense, and also with Ziegler and Viscovi getting beat off the dribble a little bit. And then when Tennessee needed a bucket in the half court down the stretch in that game, you don't have a go-to score like you did last year when Kennedy Chandler really emerged in conference play. I mean, you have a five-star like that, that's going to be your guy down the stretch, And you also lose John Fulkerson up front, who became a go-to post player in the last couple seasons. Placic, by the way, one of Tennessee's bigs, probably not going to be leaned on a ton. I'm going to guess 15, 20 minutes Mm -hmm. a night left that game with an ankle injury. So if Tennessee doesn't shoot well, which I don't believe it did in that Michigan Sweet 16 loss, like I mentioned, variance can happen. And when you can't score in the half court, when teams like Colorado have guards that are explosive off the dribble that you can't contain, these are when losses like this happen. I'm not saying I'm overreacting to a Tennessee early non-conference loss, but the notes that I mentioned could lead to potential conference play issues. No, I mean, their shooting and their effective field goal percentages are abysmal right now. I mean, they're 289 in Kempom and effective field goal. I think they're 32% from the floor, 28% from three-point range. It's just not going to cut it, especially like you said, Eli, when a Colorado team comes in hungry off of kind of a bizarre loss of their own to open the (laughs) season. And, you know, again, like there's time to right the ship. If you're Rick Barnes's team, you look at the schedule upcoming here and they've got Butler next week. That's going to be an interesting matchup. And we'll talk a little bit more about how Thad Mata is incorporating some new pieces down the line in this podcast. But, you know, they really don't have a lot of tough games until the middle of December when they have Maryland and Arizona back to back. So, you know, the defense. Defense has been steady so far. They're still number three in adjusted efficiency on Ken Palm there. But again, if you're not scoring in the half court and you're playing from behind and you don't have that kind of firepower that you're used to and you don't have a go-to guy like Kennedy Chandler, who's going to really step up and make plays for them at this point? So those are our big three takeaways. Maybe I just coined a segment there, Scott. Big three takeaways, like how you have the big three Could in the be. NBA. Could be. Sponsors. Sponsors. We're listening. <laughs> Paul. Will Paul jump on board as a show sponsor for the Big Three segment? <laughs> to be determined. If he's already listening pre-wedding night, you never know. But Scott, a couple of, and you harped on it with Butler and the Big East. We'll touch on the Big East and maybe a long shot conference future or just a team that we see as a sleeper with Villanova. Just an update as we're doing this. Only up three at home against Delaware State with three minutes to go in that first half. Abysmal. But, you know, we got people listening on the recorded episode, so no need for for monster score updates here later on in this game. So let's start off with the Big Ten, Scott, where Indiana is the consensus favorite going back to the preseason. Let's say around plus 300 to win the conference. Popular pick to win the league when you think about the national media. Not that that matters when it comes and, and boils down to betting. Michigan. The second shortest odds at plus 450 after what we saw against Eastern Michigan, which 
I don't necessarily think was a fluke in terms of the Wolverine susceptible defense, and we'll touch on that. So I'll give you the floor first here, Scott. Is there a team that you're intrigued by when you look at the Big Ten conference futures market for the regular season? For the futures market, again, like we've touched on Iowa a little bit. I think they're off to a really strong start, and we expect the natural leap from Murray this season following in his brother's footsteps. But, you know, again, you're looking at a veteran team that has a lot of uh, size, length. They play a different speed and tempo than a lot of Big Ten teams. You know a Fran McCaffrey team is going to spread the floor and have one of the better offenses in that conference. But, you know, their defense off to a steady start so far. I've liked what I've seen from them, obviously in some pretty weak competition. You know, Purdue is interesting to me, if only because you don't have that split minutes at center this year, and that was harped on so often last year. And again, there's some interesting size in that group as well. I think, you know, you look at Mason Gillis at the four and what he brings is kind of a 6'6", jack of all trades, small ball type, and you sub him for Caleb first at 6'10", who's a very good passer and a solid compliment to Zach Eady. And, you know, I've liked what I've seen from them. If you want to look at it, maybe a deep, deep sleeper, and I'm not, you know, advocating a play for any sort of, you know, Big Ten futures or anything like that, but just a team that might sneak up on some people is Penn State. Uh, They've had an intriguing start for me so far, the most experienced team in the country uh, via Ken Palm. And, you know, they're looking so far at a top 17 offense. They're the number one effective field goal group in the country. This is a lot of guys who have blogged a lot of minutes in college basketball so far. And they were a top 50 defense last year. They had a lot of their losses in Big Ten play come under eight points or less. So maybe they didn't know how to win last year. But, you know, you look at a coach in Micah Shrewsbury, who's got experience in the Big Ten under Purdue. He had some time in the NBA with the Boston Celtics staff. And correct me if I'm wrong, he was on that Butler staff, right? Yes. So, you know, you're looking at a team where, you know, Jalen Pickett is is one of the most accomplished players in college basketball in terms of his sheer career numbers. And he really elevated his play during the Big Ten portion of the season after maybe looking a little lost jumping levels from Siena. Uh, Cameron Winters had a nice, you know, adjustment so far in terms of uh, his, you know, transition to the Big Ten and that group as well. And, you know, they can really space the floor at four or five different spots. I, I still c- I'm concerned a little bit about Penn State on the interior. You know, losing John yeah. Harrer and his double-double pr- uh, production is not easy to replace. They're going to be smaller than a lot of the teams they're dealing with. I, I kind of shudder to think how they guard Zach Eady with the group that they have out there now. But, you know, you look at Penn State only having to face Indiana once in conference season, the experience level that they have, the unique home court factor of Bryce Jordan if it gets rolling. And I think they could maybe sneak up on some people this year and have a better season than maybe people projected. You mentioned Iowa, Scott, and that's probably the team that I'm looking at. And by the way, just to hit on your Penn State potential and long shot concept. I know you said you wouldn't. Sure, uh, yeah. I, just, yeah. They're just a team for me to monitor for, you know, maybe postseason. Uh, you know, sure. you're making a leap from a sub 500 to in a, in, a, in a year where the Big Ten has a lot of question marks. I think that they have some interesting pieces here. Yeah, and they're sitting at plus 4,000, so 40 to 1. You can get them as high as 60 to 1. Scott is not advocating for that, but it's similar to a team that I want to mention in the mid-major conference that I might look at as a long shot conference tournament future. So Penn State could be intriguing if the pieces do come together, like Scott mentioned, not just for the first couple of games. Granted, I have a bet on Butler tonight and they're at Penn State. So I'm praying that your theory doesn't come to fruition, (laughs) at least tonight here on Monday (laughs) evening, but I'm not going to sweat out that game on a recorded podcast, of course. Going back to the big time before we get off track here, Scott, I mentioned, or you mentioned Iowa at plus 550 or six to one sitting around there. I think it might be worth a look as a big 10 regular season title bet. I, I haven't placed the future myself, but just the team that I would give a look towards. You still have a lot of shooting. I, I don't know how Patrick McCaffrey and I guess more importantly, Connor McCaffrey are still in college. I absolutely hate Fran McCaffrey just in terms of his facial expressions during games. But you mentioned defense, and that was last year was Fran's best defensive team, maybe ever at Iowa. And it it was impressive to watch. Now, you lose a guy that gives you a lot of defensive versatility in Keegan Murray, but like you mentioned, I think this is kind of the breakout season from Murray to Murray for Chris Murray this year. And Indiana, though, defensively, man, is going to be offensively, I question their shooting. So I don't want to necessarily just go with the favorite, but 
with Trace Jackson Davis and Race Thompson up front. You mentioned kind of a team that was learning how to win in Penn State, and I'm not comparing the two just because, again, of the longer odds versus the favorite to win the conference. Now another season, former first-year coach coming from the NBA on to college to coach for his alma mater. Indiana's going to be interesting if you get really good guard play from Xavier Johnson and if he's able to space the floor at an efficient rate. I love the guard pairing with your freshman guard, five-star guard coming in to pair along with Johnson. And Mike Woodson as defensive coach, a lot of people thought he was going to play pack line at Indiana. He hasn't so far at least, but his man-to-man defense is very tenacious. And this Indiana team should be in the top 20 of Ken Palm, top 20 of my power ratings for most of the season, I assume. Yeah, I mean, the Big Ten is pretty wide open. Uh, we, we've discussed this off pod and a little bit last week, but, you know, any of these number of teams are intriguing. We didn't even touch on Illinois and their clear and obvious upside. We'll get more into them later as we break down the UCLA matchup. Michigan obviously still has Hunter Dickinson and I think Jet Howard has shown some intriguing things so far playing for his father in his freshman year, maybe having that production that people expected out of Caleb Houston last season that really didn't come to fruition. And so, you know, you still question the point guard play with Jalen Llewellyn and his transition to the Big Ten. But, you know, there's a lot to like about a lot of these teams and again I don't think there's a clear-cut favorite so far no and I'm glad you mentioned Michigan because that was my biggest issue against Eastern Michigan not only the point guard play with Llewellyn but defensively going from Llewellyn to Devontae Jones and Jones lacked a little (laughs) bit scoring wise and he was also banged up a little bit last year but that is a a major drop-off defensively and we saw Eastern Michigan not only with Imani Bates at the three and the four but their guards really carve up Michigan defensively off the dribble. So concerning yeah, talented you know, team. For a, yeah, very talented team and a team that could definitely cause some problems as a mid-major if Bates shoots like he did on Friday. Maybe a little bit of an anomaly if you go back to his efficiency last year and a little bit of a revenge game going up against a team that recruited him and was a potential link to him as a transfer in the offseason. But he gets to uh, put up a lot of shots at Eastern Michigan, which is what he wanted to last year and probably for a little bit of a better coach. And maybe we'll save our Penny Hardaway takes off pod, as you like to say. (laughs) But on to Scott, the Big East and Villanova looking at the final score, beating Delaware State by 10 points. So they do bounce back. Don't cover the 35 plus point spread in the game following an outright loss to Temple as five-and-a-half-point favorites in the, the Big Five game on Friday. I mentioned to you in a text last Friday that if if I didn't bet Temple, I, I would have hated myself all night, and I came through with the Owls. The Owls came through for me with that length. So looking at the favorites to win the conference, Creighton sit in plus 180, Villanova following them, then you have a mix of, of Xavier after that, Connecticut. Which team are you looking at? And I know you mentioned Creighton, that you like them to win the national title. That was your national title futures pick at 30 to one in our preseason podcast. But if you had to take a long shot or maybe a team to surprise in the conference, which team would it be? St. John's. I don't know why I'm so interested in them. Maybe it's the talent level, um, but just, you know, again, a lot of it's going to come down to Andre Curbelo and his ability to share the backcourt with Posh Alexander, who's obviously a known commodity in the big East. Uh, you know, if Curbelo is able to kind of, you know, slow down some of those wild passes and turnovers that he would show at Illinois during, uh, you know, bad occasions on many cases, you know, that's a fascinating backcourt. And then I've always loved David Jones. I think, you know, underrated last year playing at DePaul and maybe didn't get as much love because of Javon Freeman Liberty's high scoring output. But, you know, he was DePaul's best player in a lot of stretches last season, especially when Freeman Liberty was unable to deliver. And Again, you look at those three, Joel Soriano has great natural size to combat some of the great centers of the Big East that we talked about. Montez Mathis is a veteran wing who's been through a lot of Big East games himself. And you know, there's some concerns here. There's plenty of concerns. But you know, to <laughs> me, like that, that talent level it kind of stands out to me. And if those guys can mesh together, if Curbelo is the point guard that 
you know, he can be and he's not throwing the wild, flashy showcase passes, then there's a lot of talent on the floor here, especially, you know, when you look at Villanova playing down so far, you look at, you know, the bottom feeders like Georgetown, DePaul that should stay there. Like, you know, there's a lot to like with this team. They're going to have a really bad non-conference schedule. I'm looking at it now and, you know, Temple and Iowa State are really their their only marquee matchups. And I put that really loosely, but we I don't really know what to expect from this team once we get to the Big East. But in a conference where I don't love a lot of the middle of the pack, like I'll, you know, I'll vouch for the talent of them more than some of these other teams. I can't tell you how many times I have backed St. John's in the conference tournament. I mean, the home court <laughs> factor is is interesting at the Garden, but no, man. I love Posh Alexander, who you mentioned, one of the best defensive guards in college basketball. And one interesting note about Curbelo, too, not only is the flashy passing, and granted, I can't really trust Mike Anderson as a coach to get that out of him, but the pressure defense with two really athletic guards is intriguing for a team that wants to play up-tempo. The big thing for me, not only getting the passing efficiency of for Curbelo, but if he can get those dumb three-point shots out of his system, yes, very much so. If you look at conference or non-conference play so far, only three three-point attempts. And he took some really dumb shots. If you go back to that Houston game, the second round game, yes. that took him out of the game in the first yes. half, like just staring at the screen. Granted, Trent Frazier had pink eyes. So, you know, there are a lot of things going on with that Illinois team. Kofi Coburn couldn't deal with Houston's trap defense. But I digress. St. John's is a very intriguing team. The one team that I'm looking at, and I don't really want to consider them a sleeper in the Big East because a lot of people have hyped them up in the offseason when you go from Travis Steele to the former Xavier and Arizona coach probably sweating through his shirt right now, whatever shirt it is, in Sean Miller. You have Jack Nungy and Zach Fremantle, the two returning bigs up front. Nungy, the Iowa transfer, we mentioned the Hawkeyes earlier on the podcast, Colby Jones has a lot of upside at the three, can stretch the floor and can take you off the dribble, really athletic at that three, even a four if spot if, if Xavier and Miller decides to go smaller at some spots in games. The, the question mark for me, though, is interior defense because as intriguing as Fremantle is, if he's healthy, because he wasn't healthy going back to last season and is the point guard play with Boom, the transfer from UTEP and Claude, your four-star point guard. It's an ideal guard combination from a ceiling standpoint, but I wonder about the floor from looking at it truly from a, a point guard perspective because Boom is more of like a natural score, and still we don't know really how Claude is going to transition to the college level. Again, the, the ceiling makes me see the upside with the Xavier team among with the talent all around with Nunji potentially taking even more of a step up as a score. We saw how good he was down the stretch when Xavier went on the run to win the NIT. But guard play and interior defense holds me back a little bit with this team, especially when you think about how good defensively Creighton could be in their ceiling. Yeah, and Sean Miller has touched on how hungry this team is, how they have a lot to prove, especially coming off the NIT and losing their coach, kind of, you know, having that great start to last year that they gave away and kind of, you know, gave away a tournament bid for all intents and purposes. And, you know, again, for me, like you look at some of these odds right now and you see St. John's at anywhere from 20 and you look at Xavier at seven to win the Big East. And we just talked about the talent of St. John's and the talent of Xavier. And I don't think it's that far apart. And so that's why I'm interested in kind of that middle of the Big East, because we've talked a lot about Creighton. We like UConn and what they can bring to the table. Villanova will probably right the ship, although point guard play has been a big concern to start the season. And got to get Justin Moore low. back. Yeah. And again, coming off an Achilles, like that's not a foregone conclusion that he's going to be the same player that he was. That's one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult injuries for a basketball player to recover from. And that happened late in the year. So I don't know what to expect from Justin Moore and what we're going to see from Villanova all along. I expect them to obviously be a presence among the top half of the Big East, if not competing for the title again. But, you know, outside of that top three, Xavier's looking like the fourth team because of their, you know, their run last season. And Miller's obviously addition being a huge addition over Travis Steele in terms of his uh, X's and O's and what he's able to bring to the table. But, you know, after that top four, I mean, Providence is already 
you know, a team we're going to be fading regularly. Like last year, I, I think the luck might have run out there. And Marquette's got a lot of question marks. Seton Hall's obviously turning things over from Kevin Willard to Holloway. And, you know, Butler, we've talked about deep, deep, but there's still a lot of question marks there with Thad Mata's group. So, again, this this middle of the pack for the Big East, kind of much like the Big Ten where there's major question marks, but there's a chance to have some teams break out that gives some value, especially for something like a conference tournament. Yeah, I, that's where I kind of circle a lot of these teams, especially the longer shots, is the conference tournament. Can you make a run over a four to five day stretch for a team like St. John's that can wear you down defensively with that ball pressure and speeding you up? We saw it last year. St. John's was up 17 in the first half against Villanova, I want to say, or double digits at the very least. Now, Villanova with their experience, Jay Wright, Gillespie, and you hit on it on the first podcast, losing Colin Gillespie. People understand how good he was, but just as a shot maker and a distributor. And then we also don't know what Cam Whitmore is going to be like as a freshman. He's a highly touted freshman. Yeah, that's also a very good point. Yeah. So on to a couple of the other conferences before we get into the games for the rest of the week. Scott, Pac-12, I don't really want to coin anybody as a sleeper. Oregon was the team that a lot of people hit on and harped on in the offseason. And what do they do against an underwhelming UC Irvine team? They lose by double figures as a 15 and a half point favorite on Friday. (laughs) That was one of the more abysmal losses, especially with when you couple that with Colorado losing as a 14 and a half point favorite to Grambling. But Colorado did get the outright win over Tennessee. And we'll we'll hit on the Pac-12 as the rest of the podcast schedule moves along. But one quick note that I want to hit on in the Mountain West, watching a team like Nevada, similar to these other teams that we've that we've gone through that maybe have high upside as a conference tournament futures bet because San Diego State to me is the class of the Mountain West, especially when you watch what they did in the second half against BYU. These San Diego State offenses, Aztec offenses under Dutcher usually don't have the type of scoring where you can put up 80 points. And they look like they were in trouble in the first half of that Friday night game against BYU, but with Tramel, these, I want to say the Seattle transfer and Matt Bradley too came over from Cal. It's a very intriguing backcourt. You still have Mensa up front. Their pack line defense is similar to what Virginia runs, honestly, on both sides of the floor. So San Diego State is the odds on favorite, I want to say, to win the conference and is deserved of that price tag. But with Nevada, from what I saw, and I know it was a Saturday matchup against Grand Canyon and Grand Canyon lost some pieces in the offseason. Still an intriguing team from a mid-major level under Bryce Drew. But the addition by subtraction, man, I know it's a cliche that a lot of coaches like to bring up, and I'm sure you've heard it at least a thousand times. But going from Grant Sherfield, who I've hyped up a lot, and I'm pretty sure I did last year when I took Nevada as a conference tournament future to win the Mountain West Conference Tournament. But you lose him, and he was really a a poor presence, to say the least, in that locker room and in the, on the floor from a lot of the people that I talked to in the offseason. You get the Oregon State transfer and Jared Lucas, who can really stretch the floor. Blackshear at the point, who's a very athletic point guard and has a lot of size. They looked really good in the first half. You still have Baker on this team that's a stretch five. Still have a lot of pieces from last year's Nevada team who really didn't live up to the ceiling that a lot of people expected from the Wolfpack as maybe a dark horse in the Mountain West last year. So that's a team that I might be looking towards, not only to back in conference play as a dog scout, but also in the conference tournament. Do you think that there's added value right now to looking at Wyoming for a conference uh, for a conference future, given their early injury concerns and maybe kind of flying a little bit under the radar after an early loss. I mean, I know you've been high on them entering this season, so I'll defer to you and give you the floor. But, you know, I kind of look over this conference right now and there's not really a lot to like outside of like that core four besides you touching on Nevada. And I'm I'm anxious to hear what your take is on Wyoming and how they maybe are able to figure things out once they get healthy. Well, yeah, I mean, you go back to what happened on Sunday, losing to Southeast Louisiana as a 21-point favorite. Now, variance similar to Tennessee. You don't shoot the ball well. You don't have your post guy in Graham EK. You still have Maldonado, but Wyoming's offense runs through the low post. And we saw it against Indiana, just going back to that playing game, when you can't play through the low post. Now, granted, you don't have 
your primary option and the Mountain West preseason player of the year in Graham Ike yesterday. And I want to say for the next five to seven weeks. So maybe a buy low for Wyoming, but I still think San Diego State is the class of that conference and not really a team I want to bet against. No, that's fair. And again, you look at the schedule for Wyoming, it's brutal that they have to face Dayton, St. Mary's. Yes. They've got San Diego State early in January, followed by Utah State and Boise State early in January. Like the schedule gods did them zero favors in terms of these these injury issues. And again, maybe an intriguing by low for something like a conference tournament, maybe not the outright regular season title. But right. yeah, I, I just I think that there's a lot to like when healthy, but we're going to have to wait a while to see what that looks like. You're listening to the Lines.com Podcast Network. Looking for the latest player props and the best betting odds from the top U.S. sports books all in one place? Then join us right here every day this season for free picks and best bets from the sports betting experts you can trust. Check out the Lines.com NFL Megapod as Matt Brown, Steven Andrus, and Adam Candy break down every game for this weekend's football slate. Join the Coast to Coast podcast crew Mondays through Fridays as Nate Weitzer and Josh Lander bring you the best player props and game lines for Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL. And tune in to Beat the Closing Line twice a week as Nicole Russo, Mo Nawara, and Eli Hershkovich dive into NFL opening lines, plus special guests from the sports betting world. So subscribe, rate, and review to the Lines Podcast Network, the source you can trust to make you a better sports better. So we've touched on some conference regular season thoughts and maybe some dark horses to look for come the conference tournament. We didn't really get to hit on a ton of conferences on our preview podcast because we were mainly focusing on the national title features market and looking at the top of the odds board. But now to hit on some games, Scott, for the rest of the week. And we're going to do a pregame show on Discord on Tuesday, I want to say around 5.30 Eastern. So be out on the lookout for that on Twitter as we really dig deep into the two games in the Champions Classic, Kentucky-Michigan State tipping off at 7 Eastern, and also Kansas and Duke, that game following the conclusion of Kentucky-MSU. A couple of headlines for Kentucky-Michigan State. Obviously, Michigan State nearly beating Gonzaga outright is one as we head on to start off the podcast, but John Calipari touched on it with Oscar Shibway, who's the reigning national player of the year, hasn't played a, a minute for Kentucky just yet. If he does play, Cal said that he'll play in three to four minute stretches. And it seems like Damian Collins, Kentucky's backup big to Shibway, is going to be back for this game. And we were texting about it on Friday. Severe Wheeler came back and played pretty well against Duquesne. Kentucky covered that point spread pretty easily. Now for Michigan State, we mentioned how well Sissoko played. So whether he's matching up against Damian Collins or Shibwe in those stretches, he played pretty well defensively against Timmy in the low post. So intriguing matchup one-on-one. But what are you looking for is, I want to pull up the latest odds for this game, but I believe Kentucky is sitting around a six, six and a half point favorite on a neutral in, in Indianapolis. I just love how efficient and uh, seamless that this team has looked without the Wooden Award winner. I mean, you know, Severe Wheeler returns to the lineup after missing the first game. He's efficient, putting up numbers across the board. Cason Wallace has looked really good to start his freshman season. And the shooting of Antonio Reeves and CJ Frederick has really stood out so far. The fact that they can come in and reliably space the floor, give them some comfort off the bench, or maybe a second unit type of look is really, really jarring to me how, how effective they've been so far. And, you know, you add the double uh, team presence of someone like Shibwe coming back, returning the middle. Collins has missed time as well. There's just a lot to like about this group so far. In the past, we've seen some Kentucky teams where, you know, the talent on paper is always there. We know there's going to be five-star McDonald's All-Americans and high-level transfers, but I think these guys are playing pretty selfless ball right now. It's a nice mix of pieces that are coming in new and are hungry to prove something, and guys like Jacob Toppin who have elevated their play from last year. And, you know, once you add the Wooden Award winner to the mix, whew, that's a pretty scary ceiling to deal with. So I, again, I like Kentucky early in this matchup. Um, you know, Michigan State, I think a little bit of a misnomer after the ship game, but you know, Maddie Sissoko did an effective job on Timmy in the first half. You have to like what maybe he's able to bring to the table if Shibwe is playing in spurts or if Collins is playing his first game since losing his father, which is you know obviously a very difficult thing to deal with, and our hearts go out to him and dealing with that grieving process. But you know, Kentucky's loaded and and they're playing well together. 
together early in the season. They're playing efficiently. I, I like them a lot in this matchup, especially in an area in Indianapolis where there's going to be Big Blue Nation in a major way. You mentioned it with Kentucky shooting Reeves and TJ Frederick combining 16 of 30. Quick math by me right there, by the way, looking at some some stats. So I'll give myself a pat on the back. For that well done mr math thank you. look at you <laughs> hey man was it was it in calc a b as a senior for no reason let me tell you that but gonzaga we we harped on this at the beginning of the podcast gonzaga shot four of 18 against michigan state from three not your typical zag shooting performance now no we'll hit on this in the texas preview with zags playing at the new arena down in Austin in a second, but Kentucky's going to have a much heavier and more reliant perimeter presence in this game. That's not be played outdoors. And like you mentioned in the sun for a little bit in the first half. So granted shot quality didn't show a, a huge amount of variance in the final score, but when you factor in what Gonzaga would typically shoot on a typical neutral court, and the way Kentucky could space the floor, unlike really only having one of those true three-point threats, big-time three-point threats in Kellen Grady last year, going from just him to Reeves and a healthy Frederick, whose shot has looked tremendous and just like it has, if not any better than what he showcased in his Iowa career for a couple of seasons. I agree. I think this Kentucky team could win by double digits. Not saying I'm going to lay the points just yet, but... When you think about variance, it's definitely an intriguing factor for what Kentucky can do to space the floor against a Michigan State team that tried to play pack line and it worked against Gonzaga. I'm not sure it it would work this time around against a Kentucky team that can shoot it from deep at a pretty efficient rate. Scott, over to the second game of the doubleheader in the Champions Classic. Kansas opened as a dog. Duke opened around minus one and a half, minus two on the soft opener. Now, Granted, a lot of these games and markets are copied from the Kempom numbers initially, but it got bet the other way pretty quickly. Looking at the most of the nationwide legal books, Duke was bet the other way. So Kansas got bet up to minus one and a half, minus two. We're sitting around Kansas minus one, minus one and a half. Before this podcast started, I told you it got about the Blue Devils at plus two. There are still some Duke plus two sitting out there, Scott, if you want to grab that. As we're discussing this, before I get started, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Is this a show bet for us? And then I'll dive in with my Duke takes. It can be. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in on Duke in this matchup. I think that their size on the interior in particular with the question marks that Kansas has had on the inside, replacing David McCormack. They're playing a lot of small ball to start the season with Jalen Wilson at the five at 23% of their line or 23% of the time in their lineup so far per Ken Palm. So, you know, they're leaning more towards small ball. And you look at the Filipowski, Ryan Young mix. We don't know what Derek Lively is going to look like coming off of injury, but obviously he's a potential about uh, matchup minutes nightmare. On Friday. Yeah, and I think he had four points on two of two and, you know, yeah. again, inferior competitions. So you can't take much from that. But if he is, you know, anywhere near his normal self, that trio right there, especially with Young being a veteran who kind of throws a different change of pace at you compared to those two five star guys and, you know, more about the footwork and some old school moves. I worry about Kansas's ability to defend that front line when most of their uh, lineups have been small ball this year. I love, obviously, the start for Jalen Wilson. He's been every bit of the kind of star leap that Kansas has needed so far. The freshman and Grady Dick is shooting the ball well as they've needed to have. I think uh, MJ Rice was solid, his opener as well. McCullers looked like a standout defensively. But, you know, this is going to put a lot on Ernest Uday's shoulders in terms of being that six foot 11 freshman who probably needs to match up on the interior with a Duke team that can throw a lot of different options at him. That's where I want to start, too. And you've made some great points about Duke's size. And the one area of concern I have a little bit is so far watching Duke is their ball screen defense. And it's kind of been a similar tune to what we've seen from Duke in recent years. And granted, you have a freshman laden team. And with that, you're going to have one defensive area probably that stands out more than the rest. But you're not going to build self on the sideline. And exactly. That's a, that's a huge, huge factor for me. Right. And that's a coach that has 
time over time, taking advantage of poor ball screen defenses. You're going to have John Shire when you're typically going to have Coach K, who's obviously retired against Bill Self. You're getting John Shire against Norm Roberts in Kansas Duke. What a weird coaching matchup. But you mentioned it. (laughs) I'm curious to see what and if Kansas goes with Uday to start, like you mentioned, with KJ Adams playing primarily the five in their first two games, they haven't faced this type of a number one athletic team, athletically gifted team up front. And maybe Kansas could take advantage of that poor ball screen defense with the shooting that Wilson has showcased so far. And Grady Dick, the five-star freshman, the most promising freshman in that Kansas class, but also the size advantage with Mitchell potentially at the three for Duke, one of their other five stars. So like you mentioned, you have Young and Filipowski up front, Lively. I'm assuming we're going to see him a little bit more of an uptick in minutes. I doubt Whitehead plays in this game. He's probably more likely to see minutes in the PK-85. I don't think he's practiced a ton either. But when you think about how athletically gifted this Duke team is and what they can do to this Kansas team in transition, if they're able to play up tempo. And we also haven't touched on the Roach matchup against Dewan Harris, I should say. Roach is a very terrific defender on top of his ability to space the floor like we saw last year in the tournament. That's a veteran presence that Duke really hasn't had at the point, at least in terms of a a point guard that can be a floor spacer and also be an elite on-ball defender, on and off-ball defender, matching up against the opposing point guard. So a lot of positive signs for me point to Duke, and I grab the Duke plus two. It seems like Scott is trending that direction as well. But Scott, looking ahead to Wednesday, where we get Gonzaga, Texas. So you mentioned how, and this line is, we don't have a projected line for this game. Kempom makes it around Texas minus three. And I'll tell you what, if it if it opens at Longhorns laying a possession, it's going to get bet the other way in a hurry. We're going to see this line close at around a pick just because of what the betting market thinks of Gonzaga, whether it's public betters or just getting Gonzaga at plus three anywhere, the market is going to eat up. You mentioned how Gonzaga avoided a disaster against Michigan State, and in theory, maybe it carries over and they play better in that next game. You traditionally see that just on a situational basis, right? Team avoids disaster. They get up for the next game and they maybe dominate or win the game by a couple possessions, even at a tough environment in Texas's home opener at the new arena. My counterpoint to that is, and I know you didn't even make the point, that's maybe the public perception of Gonzaga, is you get a Texas team that is arguably, and I think is the best defensive team in college basketball, not only in the half court, but in transition, considering what they added with Dylan Mitchell, Timmy Allen up front, and a healthy Dylan DeSue, who looks extremely healthy in terms of his rim protection, watching him so far against these crappy non-conference teams, but it's still, it's great to see him look healthy because he wasn't healthy last year for them up front. He's going to pose a problem for Drew Timmy, just like Sissoko did on the block. Now I'm assuming Gonzaga's perimeter shooting will come into a little bit more of a positive sense against a no middle defense that Texas runs that might be a little more vulnerable to three point shooting, but You also had the factor that Texas got blown out at Gonzaga last year at the Kennel. And I'm not saying situational spot, it always comes, favors the home team, and it always works out. But you're going to get a fired up Texas team at home where their defense is at a much higher level than it was last year. And you have a better defensive backcourt overall. Number one, Marcus Carr knows Chris Beard's system a hell of a lot more than he did last year at the Kennel when they got blown out at Gonzaga. And you also have a much better uh, backcourt duo overall with Tyrese Hunter and how good he is defensively. I touched on that a lot on our preseason podcast. So I'm going to wait to see how the market comes in on Gonzaga because if it does, and this game is around a pick, I'm probably going to bet Texas. Yeah, I mean, you look at Gonzaga's issues, and we talked about it earlier in the podcast, Eli, with Nolan Hickman and his inconsistent play thus far. You know, Gonzaga's offense is number one in the country, but they're 237th in turnover rate. And with a Texas team that is forcing a lot of turnovers, that is obviously well coached in that regard from Chris Beard, and that is now getting out in transition with all of those athletes that you mentioned, 
that's a pretty terrifying thing if you're a Gonzaga fan to look at that and you know start to understand that Hickman needs to step up immediately for this to be a game where they steal on the road. So, you know, for me it comes down to Hickman. We know what Drew Timmy brings. We know he's still going to be able to get his despite probably limiting some of those touches, throwing different athletic bodies on him. He'll figure out a way and he'll get touches regardless of that, but it's got to come down to Gonzaga's card play. They have to be as good as we think they are if they're going to be a national title contender. Texas, even though they started slow in their opener in the new arena, blew the gates off of that one. They had a strong start their second game offensively and looked completely comfortable against, I think it was Houston Baptist. And again, like, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, one through five athletically, how gifted this team is with Mitchell and DeSue now healthy. And I like Texas here as well, if especially if Hickman is not playing up to par. And we've said a lot of Nolan Hickman's name on the podcast. And you look at Gonzaga's plus minus rating overall for their key contributors, he's the only one in the net negative so far at minus seven. So it's it's telling early. Granted, it's a small sample size, of course, but his turnover problems against a pressure defense, like we saw when Hogard was pressuring the ball against him on the aircraft, which of course brought a lot of variance to the table, but it doesn't bring variance when you think about turnovers and whether a point guard can handle the pressure or not. The one area of concern that I touched on with Texas is their perimeter shooting in the half court. They haven't shot the ball well so far, but like we both hit on it. They're leaking out in transition a lot, which I think could very well happen in this matchup with their ability to defend. And if Gonzaga's shooting doesn't come to the table in a tough road environment, then they're going to get a lot of their run and gun opportunities in considering the spot too, after what happened last year when these two teams matched up. At Gonzaga. Looking ahead to the Roman made event in Las Vegas, a couple of matchups. Baylor, Virginia. And before we get started on this one, our condolences, of course, to the victims in the shooting in Charlottesville that occurred on Sunday evening at the University of Virginia. We can't touch on Virginia basketball. I just mentioned the name Virginia without saying that. So the Who's take on the Baylor Bears after the tragedy and our condolences again. And in the doubleheader, you also have UCLA against Illinois. Looking at the Kempron projections, Baylor might be a small dog, and I'm assuming if that happens, they'll get bet the other way, similar to how if Gonzaga is around a possession underdog, they'll get bet no matter where that game is being played at. And UCLA probably around a three, three and a half point favorite on the opener. These lines are just coming from compound projection. So Scott, I'll give you one of two options. Do you want to hit on Virginia Baylor or Aarhus, or do you want to do Illinois UCLA? I really like this Illinois UCLA matchup just in terms of, you know, again, a lot of talent overall on the floor that's really going to get up and down. If we're just talking from an aesthetic standpoint, we might get a grinded out game with Baylor, Virginia, but Illinois, like they've been really impressive to me so far. There's a lot of new pieces at play. Obviously, a lot of roster turnover from the Kofi Coburn and Trent Frazier era of last (laughs) year. But I mean, in terms of like a starting five that has size, speed, athleticism, Uh, This is a fascinating team in terms of upside, particularly if Coleman Hawkins takes the type of leap that he might be able to spacing the floor at all five spots. Uh, You know, Dane Dangers looked like a very interesting backup big guy to start the year and is a nice change of pace at around 270 pounds compared to the skinnier Hawkins. And, you know, you have a a better transfer too. speaking of the Bears. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Matthew Mayer hasn't even really adjusted quite well yet. He hasn't played all that well, but, you know, there's firepower with this Illinois team. The point guard play is something to watch for. They're relying on Sky Clark and some younger guys like Ty Rogers to come in and play big minutes early. So against a veteran like Tiger Campbell and, you know, some of these UCLA guys that have been through some battles already, that's something to watch for. But, you know, I think Illinois is really trending in a, in a positive direction, particularly when you look at Brad Underwood and his background of putting kind of unique rosters together on the fly. And again, I, I think I aim uh, UCLA kind of looking at this one early, uh, just based on the veteran presence of Campbell and some of their players. And I love what Amari Bailey's brought to the table so far, but I think that match is going to be a ton man. of fun. Yeah, well, so is Sky Clark. So, I mean, you know, That's we're, we're going to go back to DePaul any way that we can. And it's hilarious <laughs> to think they're both committed as eighth graders to Dave Lado. But, yeah, I think that matchup <laughs> has an opportunity to be a ton of fun, uh, particularly if we get a grinded out Baylor-Virginia game. 
Oh, man. Mentioning the name, the greatness of Dave Lato. I'll share a run in with the former Virginia coach. Of course, another connection to Baylor, Virginia. A run in that I had with him a few, maybe four or five years ago. Just a crazy, crazy person, especially when you face some adversity, like a lot of coaches are, I guess. Scoppy, you've dealt with, but we'll save the coaching stories when we maybe go under 30 minutes on a podcast recording. I'll touch on <laughs> Baylor, Virginia here really quickly, and you can give your quick thoughts on it as well. The one thing I want to mention with UCLA, Illinois, I might look towards an under there. This Illinois offense sure. is intriguing in transition, like we've seen against these crappy low major schools, but we haven't seen them yet in the half court. And this is a pretty interesting and Mick Cronin led UCLA defense. That is a standout defense under that sort of a coach every season. Now you lack the length that you've had in past seasons or his previous two years, three years at UCLA, but bone of the five-star came back on Friday and he'll get the match assignment against Coleman Hawkins and danger in that matchup against the Illini on Friday. I think we'll see some, a little bit of trendy dog action towards Illinois, but I would lean UCLA as well over to the Baylor, Virginia game. If Baylor does get back to a situation where it's around a three, three and a half, two possession favorite, you mentioned how this is going to be more of a slow pace game. If Virginia can implement their defense, which we touched on in the first preseason episode off pod, as well as you like to say, we got a trademark that phrase as well. I'm sure other people have used it. It, it, That can't be just me inventing that. Other people have definitely used that. I'm not taking credit for that. That's ridiculous. I don't think they have. So I'm going to give you full credit whether you deserve it or not. If Virginia can keep this more of a slow pace, we know Baylor might want to wrap it up. And we've seen how electric their transition offense can look over their first two games against, again, two low major programs. But I think Virginia has the shooting to match up against this typical no-middle Scott Drew defense. You have Franklin, who shot it pretty well, by the way. It seems like he's seen some of that positive shooting regression that we mentioned on the first episode. Vanderplas, the Ohio transfer, McNeely, the freshman, and even Kia Clark can space the floor. We saw that a bit last year, and he's done it so far this season. Granted, against inferior competition, but the Hoos have much more imposing three-point shooting than they did under Tony Bennett last year that really held them back in a lot of those non-conference games when Virginia could muck it up. And the other thing that I like about Virginia in this matchup is, number one, you have the rim protection when Baylor plays half court and tries to attack you off the dribble. And you also get a really good ball screen defense. That's if we see the transition to more of a high-level defense that Virginia maybe has the ceiling to be this year and didn't really hit last year when you had a lot of those newer pieces against a team that similar to what we talked about on the first episode, Scott Baylor runs a lot of ball screen offense under Scott Drew. So I'm really intrigued to watch from a matchup standpoint, if Virginia can create the mismatches that I just touched on and keep this thing around a possession throughout. Yeah. Positive start for Virginia, Eli, particularly when we talked about their offensive issues last season and what kind of held them back in terms of their ceiling of making the NCAA tournaments that we've come to expect under Tony Bennett. But, you know, the offense off to a great start so far. They're 19th in the country in effective field goal percentage on Ken Palm. They're limiting turnovers as they tend to do. I I obviously expect the three-point shooting at 48% to regress, uh, particularly (laughs) against longer, more athletic teams like Baylor. But again, we had the question marks about the offense. So far, they've looked clean. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. We know what we're getting out of a Tony Bennett team in terms of tempo, defense. Uh, The three-point shooting defense, a little concerning. But again, could be a little bit of an outlier so far in terms of the teams that they've faced. But Again, I think this is an interesting matchup. It might not be pretty, uh, as I talked about, but if Baylor's knocking down three-pointers and they're able to get Keontae George going, I think that that gives them a little bit of a leg up. Virginia's talent level is still a concern for me, particularly early season. They've got to gel and kind of get things together for them to be a consistent team, and that's why I pegged them to be you know, a team that I like in the ACC at a seven to maybe you know six and a half. Uh, in some books. But, you know, again, I think Baylor, they're a team that 
has a lot of national title aspirations. This is one that they have circled on their schedule in terms of an early season test that they need to ace. And, you know, coming on a neutral court, I think they come out fired up. And, you know, again, I don't really have a lean for this. I haven't felt comfortable about this matchup all week looking it over. But is this one, you know, gets to be a grinded out type of game? I don't think that's going to scare Baylor necessarily. Um, so I, I tend to favor Baylor, but I think this will be a kind of a grinded out game. But if it does get to that grinded out pace, that does favor Virginia. Now, like you said, if Baylor's scored in the half court, if they're shooting threes, Jalen Bridges an underrated transfer. And the big matchup, obviously, is you mentioned Keontae George against Armand Franklin, who I think is a pretty underrated shadow defender if that's what Tony Bennett decides to do. Now, granted, you're running the pack line defense, so you might not shadow. And you also mentioned Virginia's issues defending threes a little bit. That could come into play with a pack line defense. But we'll see where the number ends up for this game. It's the opener, I believe, for the Roman event. And I think it could be a better game than what people are giving Virginia credit for, at least from a betting standpoint in the market. But that's going to do it for the second episode of Outside Shots with myself and Scott Phillips. Follow Scott on Twitter at Phillips Hoops. You can follow me on Twitter at Eli Herskovich. Follow thelines.com on Twitter at thelinesus. And of course, remember to, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, subscribe and leave us a five-star rating. You'll have a chance to get that Amazon gift card. Also ring the bell on YouTube and you'll get that potential. Amazon gift card in your pocket. Paul, if you're listening, Scott will give you about five of those Amazon gift cards as a part of his wedding gift. Scott, any last words from you on the the pod before we go off pod to talk? We need to have more people join our Discord. Uh, It's a fun, fun community. A lot of people, a lot of people that are just looking to win, looking to have some fun. Wins and grins, as I like to call it. Um, You know, there's just a lot of (laughs) a lot of character and a lot of camaraderie there. So be sure to join our discord. We're going to be doing our live bit tomorrow uh, for champions classic. Uh, you know, I think we're going to be doing a lot of fun stuff in that space this year. So please join us on that discord, continue to follow the show. And we're really appreciative of everyone who's shown us love so far this season. Win and grin sounds like a dad joke, which sounds it is. like I am a dad. I don't, I don't care. I, I mean, look at my hair. I am the epitome <laughs> of a dad. I've got a part. I'm in a planned guest room right now as my basement gets redone. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. So yeah, I'll do some dad jokes and I'm not going to back down from them. I'm not going to make any more critiques about your dad jokes on the podcast, but if you leave <laughs> your best dad joke on our Apple reviews, I will be sure to give you that $25 Amazon gift card for any anybody that wants to give us the cheesiest liner that you could possibly give <laughs> on a betting podcast besides win and grid. But that's going to do it for the second episode of Outside Shots. So long, and we'll, we'll talk to you guys next week.